So if you would, turn to Romans chapter 9, page 1046 in the Blue Bible. Romans chapter 9. Today we will be going through verses 1 through 14. Today we'll be in Romans 9, verses 1 through 14. Next week, uh, we're going to do verses 13 through 18. I'm going to have some overlap in our passages. I am not going to attempt to unpack everything from verses 1 through 14 today. I'm not... You, you might be left hanging a little bit, but that's okay. Because that's... There's hard stuff in the Bible. Amen? God's ways are different from our ways. Amen? It takes us a little bit of time or sometimes a lot of time to get on board with God's ways, right? So, I told you months ago that Romans 8 was going to be a lot of fun. And I told you that Romans 9 was going to be a lot of work. So, we're going to have to think critically. We're really going to have to ask some big questions in Romans 9. We're going to have to consider some things that are very uncomfortable. And some of the things that you believe are going to be extremely challenged. That's not true for everyone. But there are just some core assumptions that we bring into our Christian faith that we can have for years and not even realize that they're wrong. Even the best of us. Even the best of us. So, be ready to think through some hard things in the weeks ahead. And I promise you, I promise you, as we go through this, if you wrestle through the hard stuff and give yourself to the Word of God and let God teach you and speak to you, you will come out of this a very different type of Christian. But it, you will have more peace, you will have more power, you will have more effectiveness in ministry, and you'll have a greater desire for the Lord and His plan. And, and I mean, all of us in here, we know God is good. Every single person in here thinks that. I get that. But He's going to be even better than ever. As, and you're going to see that. As you go through Romans chapter 9. So, with that being said, before I read this text, I want you to think quickly about all that we saw in Romans 8. There were just so many exciting things that Paul taught. So many exciting things. So many things that God did for His children. He's adopted us. He promises uh, the resurrection to us. He says that He is going to hold on tight to us through every distress and persecution and trial and deepest, darkest valley that we could ever possibly go through. There are so many promises that God has made to us. And we get to Romans 9 and Paul is very perplexed in spite of the good promises. Now, usually when a lot of good promises come, you know, you can take great comfort in that, right? And we should. But for Paul, in the world that he lived in, and the way he was brought up to think about things, he had some questions 
in response to Romans 8. Didn't God, like, like all the things that God is doing for us now as Christians, didn't God make those promises to Israel? My Jewish people? Didn't God promise all those good things to them? But they're not getting it. So God, what do we do? How do we handle this? And what about Israel? What about the Jewish nation? Where do they fit? So that's all I'm going to say ahead of our discussion. If you would, follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 14. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Think back to Abraham and Sarah. Book of Genesis. Verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. That's Abraham's son. Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written... Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Church, this is, these are the words of our God. Let's give ourselves to them. Let's think on them. Let's meditate on them. Let's ponder them and let's discuss them. Kids, listen to me. We're going to begin with application. Just because your mommy and daddy are Christians and they teach you the Bible doesn't mean that you're automatically one. Just because your mommy or daddy loves Jesus and you go to church every Sunday, it doesn't mean that you belong to God. The people that Paul writes about were given 
such incredible opportunity to know God. They were, God did so much for them. He showed them so many things that he did not show to the non-Jewish nations of the world. But even though they saw so much of God, they did not, many of them, did not belong to God. They missed out on the blessing of God. And we're going to see they missed out on this blessing because of their unbelief and also because of the sovereignty of God as well. But Paul starts by sharing his sadness. And it's a sadness that every one of us in here experiences and encounters to some degree. His struggle is something that I have known and many of you have known and some of you even recently have shared this struggle with me and with others in our church. There are people that Paul loves dearly that have not believed the gospel. And it is so upsetting to him because he knows what that means for them. We have family members. We have friends. We have loved ones. We have people we deeply care for that have not believed the gospel, that do not know Christ And some of them have been given so many opportunities to come. Well, for Paul, in this passage, he's thinking about the Jewish nation. He's thinking about the ethnic group of which he is a part of. In verse 1 and 2, well, in verse 1, he says three times, I'm telling y'all the truth. He says the same thing three times. He wants y'all to know. He wants us to know. He feels so strongly about what he's about to say. In verse 2, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. I have anguish. I have turmoil deep down in my soul that does not go away. Some of y'all can relate. I think we all can relate at different seasons of our life. Life is hard. People are lost. People are just like we once were without Christ, and without salvation. And we look at their lives, and we know what their rejection of the gospel or their unbelief means for them for all eternity. And it is so upsetting to us because we don't know if they're going to come to God or not. We just don't know. And there is great anguish and difficulty in our hearts because we love them, but we don't see God in their life. So that's where Paul's at in verses 1 and 2. In verse 3, y'all, I wish I had this kind of love. I wish I loved people this much. He says, I wish that I was accursed. 
That word is anathema. He's saying, I wish I was condemned or damned instead of them. He says, I wish that I could be cut off of Christ, from Christ so that my Jewish people would know Him. Y'all, He loves His country, His heritage, and He is grieving because they're missing the Gospel. We feel this tension and this difficulty with some of our loved ones. If we look at it on a bit of a larger scale, we look at our nation. And, you know, our nation started off in some really great and wonderful ways that the majority, that many in our nation now reject. And some of the foundations that our nation were built on are crumbling and our hearts are grieved. Our hearts are grieved. So he gives this snapshot into his heart. He wants us to know, he wants the re, his original readers to know how much he cares. And he's stating all of this and saying this in preparation to share some very difficult things. One person at my table asked a great question. Why does God have to make something so hard and so difficult? The simple short answer to that is that God has to handle hard and difficult things because we made it hard and difficult when we sinned. So now God's cleaning it up, but it's not easy to understand. Things were simple before we sinned. But as soon as sin entered into creation, as soon as Adam and Eve rejected God's authority, everything got complicated. And now, God is working in it and slowly making it right through the ages. But there's just a lot to sort through because we screwed it up. It was a great question. Paul is about to say some difficult things about his countrymen. And he prefaces these hard things that he's about to say by talking about how much he loves them. He wants them to know how greatly he cares for them and how deeply he loves them and how much he wants good for them. Church, and I've done my best to model this over the years, we must learn how to say hard things. And we must learn to say those things well. We must learn how to say hard things. And we must learn how to say them well. So we get to verses 4 and 5. And we see very much a a two-verse summary of all that God gave to the Jewish people. God gave the Jews things that he didn't give other nations and families. Y'all realize that, right? God chose them for certain things that he did not choose others for. And God operates like that often. But in verse 4, Paul says, they are Israelites. They're my people. They're my nation. Just like we can say, I'm an American. I'm from here. I'm from there. He says, they are Israelites. 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. That's all Old Testament stuff. We can trace every one of those things. Adoption, we, uh, covenant, um, glory, promises, the law, and worship. The Jewish people worshipped God and experienced Him like no other nation did. Just incredible. In our family worship times at home, we're reading through 1 Kings and we're about to read about Solomon's dedication of the temple. What a glorious and incredible story. The other nations didn't get to experience God's presence in worship like that. Like these folks did. But God gave the Jewish people special privileges and special revelation that he didn't give to any of the other nations. That's what he's saying in verse 4 and in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, to them belong the patriarchs. Patriarch just means father. Okay, that's a reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The first three generations of men in the Jewish nation. So verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. That has to do with blood descendants. Okay, Jesus came from the same family line as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was a grandpa, Isaac was a grandpa, Abraham was a grandpa to Jesus. Now, I don't know how many generations, dozens certainly, but I don't know how many exactly. So to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So they had all of these things in verse 4. And then Christ came to them, but they rejected Jesus. They liked the law. They liked the adoption. They liked the worship. They liked like, what it looked like and how it felt and how, it experienced, how, how, it, how it, the experience was. But they rejected the God who was at the center of it all. There's a lot going on in American Christianity where people want to go to church and sing songs to make themselves feel good but they don't really love the God or believe in the God that the songs are supposedly about. I don't think we're dealing with that here. But it, it, it's, it's a big problem. The worship music makes us, me, us feel a certain way. So, and I'm just saying this because some of us know folks who really like worship music, but they don't really like God, particularly when God calls them to something. And so the Jewish people, they loved all the external ceremony. They loved doing many of the things they were supposed to do, but they rejected the God that all of those things were about. The law that they were given in verse 4, it was to point them to Christ. It was to show them that they needed God. The worship of the tabernacle and the temple was to show them Christ Way before he came, it was pointing as signs to the Messiah. But then the Messiah came and they rejected him. So the Jewish people had all these things. They had Christ and they rejected him. Y'all, this verses four and five is the story of the Jewish people, but they missed the best part. So if they had all the good stuff, and they were not saved, then I want you to be careful that you aren't fooled into thinking you're saved because of all the religious stuff around you. 
See, we can have a lot of external stuff that looks religious. We can do great at church attendance. We can put a tithe in the offering every single week and still not trust God by faith and be saved. The Messiah came from the Jews and He came for the Jews. But many of the Jews rejected the Messiah. The Messiah came from the Jews and for the Jews, but many of the Jews rejected the Messiah, and now you all, Paul's heart is broken. That's what verses 1 through 5 is all about. Paul's heart is broken. So the Jews' rejection, it raises a question for Paul's audience. And this question isn't In some ways, it's not relevant to us, and it's not a question that we would ever raise because we live 2,000 years later, and, you know, it's just not something that would be on our minds. But as Christians, today, we have the challenge of trying to put ourselves back into their world where they were then. That's one of the challenges of Bible interpretation. That's one of the challenges, that's one of the reasons why understanding some parts of Scripture are difficult is because we have to understand what's going on at that time. That's one of the good reasons why you go to church, and why you, you can read books and, and things like that, because you get a better glimpse of what's going on. So the Jews were God's elect. They were, God, God, God chose them. But they rejected what God offered. So is God's word to be trusted? Paul's asking that question in verse 6. Do you see it? Well, he's answering the question. The word of God has not failed. Because God chose them for certain privileges, and then they rejected the God that those privileges were about, does that mean that God is not trustworthy? Or does that just mean that man screwed it up? I tell you, man screwed it up. God did not do anything wrong. And God is trustworthy. Verse 6, the word of God has not failed. If man somehow rejected God's plan, can we trust the promises of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Think about all the promises in Romans 8. He said uh, in Romans 8, we see that God has given us his Holy Spirit, right? Who originally received the promise of the Spirit? It was Israel. In Romans chapter 8, God says that He has adopted His people. Who originally received the promise of sonship and adoption? It was Israel. God is promising, in Romans 8, God is promising a future coming resurrection to His people. We looked at that a lot over the last couple months. Who did God originally give that promise to? He gave it to Israel. But the church is receiving it. Romans 8 said that Christians are foreknown by God and chosen by God and predestined by God. Well, in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God said that about Israel. In Romans 8... God said that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Amen? We looked at that last week very closely. 
Well, in Deuteronomy 31, God said to Israel that he would never forsake his people. See, God in Romans 8, God is making grand promises. How can we trust God to keep his promises to us if the ones who originally received the promises didn't receive it? How can we trust God to fulfill his promises to us if the ones who originally received the promise didn't get what was promised? It's very perplexing to Paul. Very, very perplexing to Paul. So, verse 6. Paul is going to explain the situation. And what, what I think is going on, and I'll confirm this in the weeks ahead, I think that Paul's going to take all of chapters 9, 10, and 11 to answer this question. We're going to talk a lot about the Jews in the next couple months. We're going to talk a lot about Israel in the next couple months. So look at verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Uh Uh-oh, we got two Israels, y'all. We've got two Israels. That could be troubling for you depending on what you've been taught in the past and what you understand about the role of Israel today and in the future. That, That could be very troubling for some of you, and I realize that. And it's difficult, it is. But there are two Israels. Verse 6, it says, Not everyone descended from Israel truly belongs to Israel. So that means that some of Abraham's descendants, some of his blood descendants, don't really belong to the true Israel. And what we're going to see is that the true Israel that God sees is not always the Israel that we see. The true Israel that God sees doesn't always line up with the Israel that we see. So there is unbelieving Israel and there is believing Israel. The scripture tells us there is unbelieving Israel and there is believing Israel. Let's look at verse 7, 8, and 9. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring or as children of God. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Ethnic Israel, the Jewish people that we see in the world today that are not Christian, they are descendants of Abraham. They have the blood of Abraham in their bones. But many Jews... In Paul's day and also in our day today, assume because of that bloodline, because of their physical descent, they assume they belong to God. But this is not so. Those who believe this, 
Those who think they belong to God just because of their ethnicity fail to understand the covenant that God made with Abraham. In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, we see God beginning to make promises to Abraham. God promised to Abraham, to the forefather of the Jews, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But many of the Jews believe the blessing is only for them. There's a misunderstanding of the covenant. Many ethnic Jews, uh, let me say it like this, unbelieving Jews don't understand the part about how Abraham was made right with God. And we looked at this two weeks ago when we looked at justification by faith. Unbelieving ethnic Israel doesn't understand how Abraham came to know God. He did not come to know God just because he was the first Jew. But he knew God because he believed the promise of God. See, there is believing Israel and there is unbelieving Israel. So we must not assume that all of Abraham's physical descendants would inherit the promises. Look at verse 7. There were... I'm sorry, look at verse 8. There were children of the flesh and there were children of the promise. Who are the children of the flesh? The children of the flesh are those who try to get to God by the works of the flesh, by their own good works. But the children of the promise are those who come to God in faith and they believe the promise and so they receive God's saving power. Now, in Abraham's life, we have an example of each one. There came, a, you know, Abraham and Sarah, they were waiting for the promises to be fulfilled. They're going to have a son. They were 90 and 100 years old. And God wasn't giving them the son fast enough. So Abraham and his slave girl got together and they had a baby. That son, his name is Ishmael, that son is a child of the flesh. But Isaac was the child of promise. Isaac was the child of promise. God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child. And they quit trying and believed God and then God did what he said. This is how God's people become God's people. They believe the promise of the gospel. They receive the blessing that God promised to Abraham And when they do that, they receive everything that God has. Everything that God has. All right. So we have two Israels, right? We have unbelieving ethnic Israel. And we have believing Israel. Unbelieving Israel did not believe and they did not receive. Unbelieving Israel is more obsessed with Abraham being their father than they are about Jesus than they are about God being their father and Jesus being their Messiah. Unbelieving Israel is more obsessed with Abraham being their father than God being their father. So this distinction between the two Israels, 
Uh, we see this in Jesus' life. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says, Many are going to come from east and west, from all the nations, and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in Matthew chapter 8, God is saying that people from outside of the Jewish nation are going to be in the kingdom. But many of the sons of the kingdom are going to be in that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus speaks to the leaders of the temple in a parable. And this was just days before he was put up on the cross. He says, The master of the house built a vineyard and he leased it out. And at harvest time, the master sent servants to go and collect some of the fruit as rent payment. But the tenants who were renting the vineyard mistreated these servants and even killed some of them. Well, then the master of the house sent his own son and they killed him. And Jesus asked the religious leaders, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what is he going to do to the people who killed his servants and killed his son? And the religious leaders said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard, or lend, uh, rent out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. seasons. Y'all, the Jewish people condemned themselves by saying that. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, And given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What is Jesus saying in Matthew 8 and then there in Matthew 21? He's saying that the Jewish people who were leading worship in the temple and who had all the stuff looking right on the outside, they were unbelieving Israel. They rejected the Messiah that all of that worship and glory and covenant pointed to. So even Jesus in his ministry is recognizing there's two Israels. There's an Israel that believes and there's an Israel that unbelieves. And let me go ahead and tell you just a little little glimpse of what we're going to see ahead. The church is the Israel of God. The church is the Israel of God. Read Galatians 6. There's easily a dozen other verses that that will show that. The church is the Israel of God. And I realize saying that, that may really go against what some of us have been taught. Now, hear me say this. When you consider what lies ahead between now and the coming of Christ, God is not completely done with ethnic Israel. God, I believe there will be many from unbelieving Israel that will realize they missed the Messiah when he came the first time and they're going to come to him before he comes a second time. So we're going to unpack that in Romans chapter 11. We'll get to that and look at it closely. So what is the application of this for us today? What do we learn from the Jewish leaders who rejected Israel? Church, accept God as he is. 
When God shows himself to you, don't say, no, I don't like that. I want a different version of Christianity. Don't make that mistake. Don't try to fashion God into your own system of righteousness. By the end of our passage today, we will have to face a very hard truth. Don't reject part of God or how he does something because something about his ways make you uncomfortable. You all, the scripture is trustworthy. Don't ever assume that God isn't true or can't be trusted because he didn't do things the way you thought he should. I know people who don't want to have anything to do with God today because something turned out differently than the way they thought it should decades ago. Don't do that. Don't evaluate your experiences in light of your grand omnipotent view of all things. Because your grand omnipotent, all-powerful view of all things is non-existent. Let us trust God as He is. Let us trust Him as He is. So quickly, verses 10 through 12 and 13. Paul gives a second example from the Old Testament to prove his point that not all of ethnic Israel is the true Israel. He says this, not only so, moving on here is what that means, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Now, who, who is this? Okay, Isaac was the child of the promise that Abraham and Sarah had. Isaac was the one that God gave them in their very old age after they had been barren their whole life. Isaac marries a woman named Rebekah, and they had twins. So let's read about this. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, that is Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. Before her twins were born, God told her, the older will serve the younger. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God hated Esau. God hated Esau. Some wonderful, godly people believe that this is not talking about them as individuals, but as nations that would come from them. I looked into that this week. I really don't think that's what is meant here. As an individual, God hated Esau. I'm going to leave you hanging. If I started to unpack that today, we'd be here till 3 o'clock. I don't want to be here at 3 o'clock, neither do you. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Even a pastor don't want to be here that late, all right? 
But I want you to wrestle with this in the weeks ahead. I want you to read Romans 9 every day this week. Go ahead. I dare you. I challenge you. Read Romans 9 every single day this week and see what you get. So, God hated Esau. Jacob, I loved. That's all a quote from Malachi chapter 1. We'll unpack that more next week. But verse 11 tells us, God made a decision about twin brothers before they were ever born. Why did he... And, and if you haven't been born yet, have you done anything good or bad yet? No. No. God did not hate Esau based on him doing something worse than Jacob. Verse 11 is clear. Before they had done nothing, either good or bad. For what purpose? Verse 11 tells you. Us. Not, I'm sorry, in order that. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. So God has a purpose of election. And here... He's saying that it might continue. See, God had been electing all along. It's not a new thing with Jacob and Esau, the grandkids, the grandsons of Abraham. But God chose one and he did not chose, choose the other. And the truth is, neither of them deserved God, right? Neither of them. So I just think it's amazing that God even chose one. But God chose one and not the other so that God's purpose of election might continue. And then he goes on to say at the end of verse 11, not because of works, but because of him who calls. See, no one comes to God because of their works. But we come to God because of God's purpose of election. What is God's purpose of election? Turn ahead quickly in Romans 9 to verse 22. Just look, look ahead. I'll unpack this soon, but not today. I'll just read it today. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? That is God's purpose of election. I preached from Ephesians 1 a couple months ago. We are called according to God's purpose. I unpacked the purpose of election in that sermon. And in some ways, all of Romans 8 was teaching us about God's purpose in election. You all, it is not because of works but verse 11 says, we come to God because of God who calls. If God is the one who calls his people, then God gets the glory. I believe that's the purpose of election. If God is the one who calls, then he is the one that gets the glory. If salvation is completely because of God, that doesn't mean we don't do stuff. We do do stuff. 
There's a human element in it. But God is the one who makes it all possible and he brings it all about. And without his electing grace, the things that we do would never, ever happen. So if salvation is all of God, then we can't take credit. See, I've been a Christian for almost 30 years. But I am no better than someone who's not a Christian. I don't get any glory for my Christian faith. And you don't get any glory for yours. Because of the purpose of election. If we are so dead in our sin that we couldn't choose God, and He had to choose us first, then it becomes clear that our saving faith is of God and not of ourselves. So verses 13 and 14. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. I bring 14 into the sermon today. To challenge you and also to put you at ease. God hated Esau. You may find yourself asking, I don't think it's okay for God to do that, is it? I've asked that question. I know, I've spent years sorting through that question. It's a great question. What is absolutely necessary is that we believe everything the Bible says about that and accept it by faith. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Church, I've shared hard truth today. Trust the word of God. In God's election, he is not unjust and he has done no wrong. Trust verse 14. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to unpack this. Let us do this. Let us accept God. Let us receive Him, even things that we may not understand about Him. Let us receive Him as He has revealed Himself in Holy Scripture. I want you to accept the Christ who is God over all. Do you see that in verse 5? Accept and receive the Christ who is God over all. He came for His people. And He says, believe in Me and you will be saved. If you do not know Christ, run to Him and be saved. He loves you enough to accept you as you are. And He loves you enough to pour Himself into you so you don't stay where you're at. There is no love like the love of Jesus. And he welcomes any who will come. Let's pray.